0: So, 124 kids last Sunday. But let me pray for us, um, and then we'll jump into our text for this morning. Father, we love you. Thankful for what we've sung this morning. Lord, I pray that the truths of this Christmas story, as we've walked through Advent, we've seen hope, we've looked at peace, we've looked at joy, and I pray this morning as we look at love, that the realities of this Christmas story would would seep its way from our head into our hearts, because it would change everything. And I pray, Lord, this morning specifically as as we study what the advent of Jesus means in the terms of love, I pray that you would help us to see that we worship a God every morning here, that we follow a God who is love. So help us to see that you are love this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. So on your way out this morning, grab one. There's a table right behind this this back wall that I'm pointing to, so to your back. Just grab one on the way out. We wanna make sure you have that. So 1 John chapter four, as you turn there, uh, through the Advent series, I've kind of made it clear my affinity for Christmas music, right? We all in agreement that I, I love Christmas music. We've talked about it a good bit, made that argument, don't need to talk about it anymore. But what I haven't told you is my affinity for Christmas movies, okay? I love Christmas movies. The, the good ones, right? The classic Christmas movies. And, and in defense of my honor, I am not talking about the Hallmark, you know, get your cocoa and quilt and curl up and watch Christmas. I'm not talking about those Christmas movies. Okay, I'm talking about the classics. It's Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, colored version and black and white version. Right? Uh, as a '90s kid, uh, annual favorite in our home, Tim Allen's The Santa Claus, uh, Home Alone one and two, three and four are garbage. Don't waste your time there. Okay. Uh, The the classics, the Claymations, anybody watch those, just us, we're the weird ones, yeah, the Claymations, okay, love Christmas movies, but in 2003, a new Christmas movie came onto the scene and and arguably became a Christmas classic overnight, okay, and it may or may not be the most quoted Christmas movie of all time, okay, are you with me, any guesses? Elf. Elf, easy, Elf, right, 2003, Elf burst on the scene, if you haven't seen Elf, two things for you, where have you been? Two, um, I'll try to give you a little context of what this movie's all about. All right, in Elf, there's a there's a human boy that gets taken to the North Pole and raised by none other than Papa Elf. Okay, by age 30, he's six foot four, doesn't fit into the Elf culture, and ends up taking a trip back to America, specifically New York City, to reconnect with his birth father. Um, who happens to be on the naughty list, okay, he takes this amazing journey, you know, through the seven layers of the candy cane forest, and and through a sea of uh, twirly, swirly gumdrops, and then he emerges through the Lincoln Tunnel, walks to the Empire State Building, and reconnects with his birth father, okay, good movie, hilarious movie, favorite scene in that movie, and and as soon as I start talking about it, you're going to know all about it, is when Buddy the Elf, main character, is working at a toy store in New York City, okay, you're with me? It's called gimbals. Working at this toy store, the manager of the toy store stands up and makes this declaration or this announcement to the patrons of this toy store that tomorrow at 10 a.m., Santa is coming, okay? And Buddy loses his mind, right? Because he knows Santa personally, and he begins to scream to all the patrons of the store, I know him, I know him. The scene kind of continues where, where he prepares for Santa's arrival. Next morning, 10 a.m., Santa comes. But to his dismay, it's not the real Santa right? It's the, it's the fake mall Santa. But he knows, because he knows the real Santa, like he knows what the fake Santa is, and he begins to, to test him. You know, what song did you sing for me on my birthday last year? You know, and he goes, well, happy birthday, of course. He, he passed that test. And then he gives him some more tests, you know. Um, he, he smells him and says, you stink, and begins to tell him, You're, you can't be the real Santa. You smell like beef and cheese, is actually what he says. And then he looks at this fake Santa and says, you sit upon a throne of what? lies right and he tells the four-year-old boy who's on Santa's lap don't tell him what you want because he's a fake he's an imposter and then the the scene kind of kind of crescendos to this point where buddy the elf rips the beard off of this fake Santa and he stands like triumphantly right in front of all these kids who are totally traumatized and begins to declare he's a he's a fake he's a fake so this scene okay I'm trying to get paint this picture in your mind this scene opens up with buddy the elf declaring I know him I know him and then it concludes with him proving his knowledge by revealing the fake santa okay so how does that tie into our text this morning let me make something very clear i just used a christmas movie and the idea of santa to introduce our text this morning i need i need to get something off my chest okay do not walk away from here thinking that i am equating the two of jesus and santa okay our culture does a pretty good job of that This is neither here nor there i don't have the time for this but i'm gonna do it anyway my wife told me recently that as a child she really thought santa and jesus and the tooth fairy and easter bunny were all the same category of people that she was praying right to santa around this time of year okay i don't have the time i have the passion i don't have the time this morning to totally jump into the blasphemy and the heresy found in that statement okay so our culture does this great job of kind of equating the two and okay i don't have the time Let me just say it though. But what happens is we grow up in that culture with Santa and we think Jesus is just the same. So he he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. So He he knows if you've been bad or good, right? So be good for goodness sake. So we as adults end up growing up in this culture thinking that Jesus is just watching us. And if we're good, maybe we'll get what we want, okay? So I, I don't have the time to go deep into that. What I'm trying to say this morning, although I've used a Christmas movie, And the concept of Santa, to introduce our text, they ain't the same, right? They ain't the same. And I know there's kids in the room, so I'm going to stop talking, but they're not the same. Okay, so let's jump into our text then. What are we trying to see when we see Buddy the Elf? Here's the connection I want us to see. Just as Buddy the Elf can confidently declare about Santa, I know him, I know him. When we look at the Christmas story, when we see the advent of Jesus, Jesus makes possible for us to boldly declare, we know him, we know him. And that's of God, right? So that's what I want us to see. Because of the advent of Jesus, we can say we know him. So we've looked at Matthew's rendition of the Christmas story. We've we've looked at Luke's rendition of the Christmas story. Let me introduce you to the Apostle John's, okay? So this is in the Gospel of John. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it. It's something we all know. It's an incredible poetic rendition of the advent of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. And it starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've heard that, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, and that Word became flesh. The Word that was with God, the Word that is God, became flesh, dawned human flesh. That's the incarnation, incarnation, which we talked about on the Sermon of Hope. And then John concludes this rendition of the Christmas story in verse 18 of John chapter 1 by saying this. No one has ever seen God, the only God. God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let me read that again, okay? No one's ever seen God, but the only God, this Word that was with God, this Word that is God, this Word that became flesh, who is at the Father's side now, He has made Him known. God has sent Jesus so that we can know Him, that we can know Him, okay? That's John's rendition of the Christmas story. And when we look at our primary passage today of 1 John chapter 4, what we're going to see is, is this God that we can know, he, he's a God of love. That God is love. So let's read our passage, and then I'll just kind of meticulously walk through it and dissect it together this morning. John, First uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love. And Jesus came so that we may know this God who is love. So when we look at this passage together, I want to answer the question, how? How has Jesus made known this God who is love? Let's look at love displayed in verse, chapter, uh, verse number 9. First thing we're going to see is love displayed. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Go ahead and circle that word manifest. Manifest. That, that word simply means to make visible, to put on display. He's saying in this, in the sending of his son, which is how he finishes that, that, that verse 9, that God sent his only son. In the sending of his son, God has made visible or put on display his love. Before God sent Jesus, was he love? Of course, he is love. Him sending the son just puts on display, puts visibly what is already true about who God is, okay? He is love. He always has been love. He is love today and he always will be. Before the sending of the son, in fact, before of all all of creation, we see that God is love just in the relationship of the Trinity. You ever tried to describe the Trinity to your children? My kids are all about it right now. And I'm like, oh man, you're testing. This is hard. Understanding the Trinity is a hard thing. But when we talk about the Trinity, what we see in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is is a relationship of love. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, much the most important thing to know about the Trinity is that it is a relationship of love. The Father delights in the Son, the Son looks up to this Father. And what the Christians mean by the statement, God is love, is that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. Before the sending of the Son, before the creation of the world, God is love. In the Trinity, we see the love. But when he sends the Son, we just see some visibility of what is already true about him. Okay, you with with me right now? So God is love in uh, the Trinity. But I just want to make the quick point that because God is love, Every ounce of love that you have ever given, that you have ever received, actually finds its origin in in God. Because God is the essence of love. He is the source of all love. He is the origin of all love. And as much as anyone has the smallest capacity to love or to be loved, that's due to God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, right? Whether we give him credence or credit for it or not. Every ounce of love in this world finds its origin in God. It's the doctrine of common grace. It's what we call in, in scripture common grace, that God um, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Paul and Barnabas in, in the book of Acts, which we'll see next year, later say he shows his kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty and fills your heart with joy. And He's talking to non-believers there. That whether you're a follower of Christ or someone who does not follow Christ, your ability to experience good things is because God is love, right? Nothing that we deserve. So God is love, and his love is displayed throughout every day that we live. His love is displayed in the Trinity, in creation, but ultimately, as verse 9 says, his love is displayed in the sending of his Son. Let's go back to that text. In this, the love of God was made manifest, That God sent his only son into the world. Why? Why would he display his love like this? We'll finish the verse. So that we might live through him. All right, so that we might live. God has displayed his love for us by sending his son so that you might live. All throughout scripture we see this, that you might have life. And what we know from scripture and what many of you know from experience is that there's a real difference between living in the fullness of life that Christ has to offer and just merely existing, right? We, we know that from Scripture and from experience. There's a fullness in following Jesus, and then there's this mere existence. Now, don't, don't confuse me. Just because I say mere existence, that doesn't mean that apart from Christ, you can't experience love or joy or goodness or pleasure or satisfaction. Again, common grace. There is an experience of love that a non-believer can have if you're not following Jesus. But outside of Christ, there's a limit. And there's a ceiling on the the fullness of life that you can experience. Because the fullness is reserved for those who belong to Christ. I'm going to make my point clear. Just, Just hang in there. Why? Why is there a limit? Why is there a ceiling on the life that we can experience? It's because the things that make you feel loved or pleased or satisfied apart from Christ were never designed to be the fullness of life in and of itself. The things that make you feel loved, the things that make you feel satisfied, the things that make you feel pleased were never designed to bring the fullness of life in and of themselves. Those things, y'all, they're a gift and without recognizing the giver of that gift, there's a, there's, a, there's a ceiling. There's a limit to it. Because the fullness of life is actually not found in the gift, is it? It's found in knowing the, the giver of that gift. So in essence, when we live apart from Christ, what we have is, is a life like Santa. We have gifts that make us happy. How many of you have kids? You watch your kids rip open the first gift, right? How long does it take them to jump into the second one? seconds right they're satisfied with that first gift for like a nanosecond that's us we love that gift and we get satisfied and pleased with that gift but then we just run to the next gift and we keep filling our life with more gifts and more gifts and more gifts and we're void of the lasting fullness of life that is found in the giver of those gifts there's a difference in the life found in christ and a life that is mere existence But God has displayed his love for us by sending his son so that you might have the fullness of life, not just the experience of the good things. So, so church, you you can eat good food and you can enjoy good drink apart from Christ. You can, but the Christian can eat good food and enjoy good drink and, and, and just lay back and marvel at the fact that God would create something so good. A non-believer, anybody can, can experience the pleasures of marriage or, or even sex outside of marriage. But without Christ, the Christian over here can enjoy those things knowing that God is so good that he would provide something so intimate. That's where the fullness of life is found. Are you, are you with me? Acknowledging the giver, not just experiencing the gift. So he has displayed his love so that you wouldn't merely exist, but that you would live in light of the giver of those gifts. Love displayed. Let's keep going. That's love displayed. Now John is going to define love for us. First John chapter 4 verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. All right, we're going to get to that SAT word here in a minute, but let's let's start at the beginning. In this is love. Go ahead and underline or circle the next word, not. And then you have another word that says we. Underline those, not we. And this is love, not that we. John, in essence, is saying, hey, when we define love, I'm going to define love for you, and this is love. This is love. It doesn't begin with you, okay? It, It doesn't start with us. It's not that we. It doesn't begin with us. We do not define love. God defines love. We saw this with hope. We see this with peace. We always take our meanings of stuff and then superimpose them onto God, don't we? We did that with hope, we do that with peace, we did that with joy, we definitely do that with love. We all have an idea in our head of what love is, and then we tend to take that definition and then just throw it onto the character of God. So if your definition of love is aforementioned Hallmark movies, okay, quilt, cocoa, curling up, you know, feeling, what you do is we tend to take that and go, well, that's how God ought to make me feel because God is love. And then half the room, men mostly, feel totally disconnected from that God, right? You don't understand that type of God because we have to learn how to love our wives like that, okay? So we feel disconnected. We, we take our definition, we throw it onto God, and we, we think that love is a feeling, so we don't understand this type of God. Or let me give you a definition that is way more prominent in our culture today, okay? I'm going to be pretty offensive today. I woke up really early, had a lot of coffee it's just going to be offensive, okay? Here's what we do. Here's our definition of love in our culture, and our society. If God is love, then I can do whatever I want, and I can be whoever I want. Allowing me to be me is the greatest expression of love, right? So if you, let's just take this interpersonally. If you love me, you'll accept me for who I am. You'll accept me for who I want to be. You'll accept me for what I want to do. You all see that in our culture? Or we take it a step further. If you love me, you would just want, you, you, it won't just accept me. You won't just tolerate me. You'll approve me. You'll approve of who I am, who I want to be, and what I want to do. Y'all see that? Let's take it a step further because where we're at today is it's not just tolerate. It's not just approve. If you love me, then you'll celebrate me. You'll celebrate who I want to be. You'll celebrate me for what I want to do. Because if you disagree with me or if you disagree with what I want, then, then you just don't love me we see this everywhere, don't we? And be careful because we think, yeah, that's out there. No, no, no. Culture seeps its way into the church. Culture seeps its way into all of us. And we've got to be on guard because this is where it starts to peer up. How many times have you guys shared the gospel of Christ in an interpersonal relationship lately? Okay, that's challenging. Probably, probably rarely. Why? I just, I just want to love people. I just want to love them. Just want to meet them where they're at just want to show them the love i don't want to open my mouth and, and risk I, I want to make sure they feel loved and tolerated and approved and accepted and so i just want to meet people where they are but that's unbiblical right we've lit that definition of love really seep its way into our discipleship god is love and if we say that god should accept approve tolerate celebrate who i am what I want to be, and what I want to do, in effect, we're saying God is indifferent to sin. You, you following me? All right, I'm going to take you on a journey. You got to stay with my logic, okay? We cannot divorce the fact that God is love from the biblical reality that he is holy. God is love. God is holy. Leviticus 19:2. you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy god is holy holiness means morally pure pure so because god is love and because his love is holy it's so pure y'all he cannot he cannot accept approve tolerate uh, tolerate or celebrate things that you want to be when they're contrary to his design for you because of his love and because his love is so holy, because it's so pure, it, he cannot, he cannot accept, cannot tolerate, he cannot celebrate that. That's what happens when we define love the way the culture wants to, and we throw that on to God. We think that he does accept. We think that he does tolerate. We do think that he celebrates. Love doesn't start with us. Not that we. That's what John says. Love cannot start with us. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we. Doesn't start with us. So following that love, remember I'm trying to define love. Following that logic, we say that love does not define with us. We We don't begin, doesn't begin there. So in light of the fact that he is holy, love can actually be defined with his wrath. Told you, drank a lot of coffee, okay? Love can be defined and understood when we see his wrath. Listen to this quote from Pastor Matt Chandler out at the Village Church in Texas. He says, the more you love something purely, the more capacity for wrath you possess. Let me say it again. The more you love something purely, the more capacity for wrath you possess. Any husbands in the room want to back that statement up? All right, let me illustrate that, okay? Even in your broken, frail love as a husband, do you love your your wife? Purely? Fiercely? Somebody tries to hurt your wife or, or corrupt your wife. Are you capable of wrath? Yeah, right? Parents in the room, love your kids. Even in your broken, imperfect love, you love your kids. Love them with fierce, fierce love, pure love. Do you love your kids? Someone tries to hurt your children, corrupt your children. Are you capable of wrath? All right, if that illustration didn't hit, I know this one will. How many of you love your sports teams? <laughs> right? Love them. Purely. Fiercely, that referee throws that flag unwarranted. Are you capable of wrath? What are you feeling inside? Are you seething, right? It's our love, it's our ability, our our capacity for love that actually makes the capacity for wrath possible. The more we love something purely, the more wrath we can experience in light of that. So to say that God is not wrathful would be to admit that He's indifferent to the corruption of His creation that He so fiercely loves. He loves the world. He loves you, and because he loves it so fiercely and so purely, it makes his wrath possible. All right, so let's take a deep breath, and this is offensive. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God, right? Some of you are are, are thinking right now, it's like, man, I really thought that I'd found my church. (laughs) Hang in there. Here's where we have to let the word of God rip the beard off of the fake gods we've created in our lives, okay? This is what we do. We create God in our own image. We already define love, and then we superimpose that definition of love onto God. So we've created this God that's, that's fake, and, and we got to let the word of God rip this beard off and expose it. So we believe love begins with us. God is love. He just approve and tolerate and accept what I want, and because he's like that, he'll never be angry with me. And we let, this, we let this sink into the church, and we come up with these cliches that, that kind of, honestly, kind of apologize for the God of the Bible. Because we don't like that. We don't like that God is wrath. So we come up with these cliches that make us feel good about the fact that God is wrath. So we say things, well, yeah, he doesn't like sin, but he loves the sinner. Right? How many of you have you heard that before? He, God, God hates sin, but he, but he loves the sinner. That would be awesome. I mean, it makes me feel good if, it, if that were to be true. Because the scriptures would say, that's not true. Psalm 5, verse 4 and 5. Just listen to the word of God. We got to rip the beard off. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. He hates the evildoer. He hates the wicked. And if we're honest, how many of you feel offended right now? That's offensive. We don't want that type of God. We don't want an angry, wrathful God. We just want a jolly, gift-giving, merry God who gives us what we want, celebrates what we want, and approves of what we want. Who do we want? Santa. We, we want Santa. We don't want this God of the Bible. But if you check out right now, y'all, you're going to miss the good news. We have to understand how bad the bad is to realize how good the good is. Because as a reminder, verse 8 says, God is love. Y'all, he has wrath, but he is love. Are Are you tracking with me? God is love. His pure love means that he has wrath, but because he is love, he has made a way out of his love to appease his wrath. And display his love for you. Love defined by his wrath, but ultimately in the advent of his son. Verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love can be defined in that one word that you probably have never used in a conversation ever. I don't remember seeing that on the SAT, Right? It's the word propitiation. God's love is defined in that word, propitiation. That simply means, as we look through the Old Testament, what is propitiation? It means the appeasement of God's wrath, a satisfied wrath. God's wrath, brought about by his massively fierce and pure love for you, has been appeased because it was poured out on Jesus and not on you. Jesus. As this scripture says, his only son, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? The the baby that was born in a manger and in some no-name town of Bethlehem to a teenager in in a manger took God's wrath on your behalf. He appeased. He was the propitiation. He appeased God's wrath. And let me read to you from scripture how Jesus did that. Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus getting ready to go to the cross, he falls on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays this prayer. Father, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Remember that prayer? Let this cup pass from me. What cup is he referencing? Psalm 75, verse eight. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25 verse 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 22, thus says your Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the cup of my wrath. You shall not drink anymore. Three scriptures to define what that cup is. What is that cup? It is full of divine wrath. It's the cup of the Lord's wrath. And Jeremiah says it will be poured out on all the nations who are wicked. All who have fallen short of the glory of God are to drink the cup of God's wrath. Because of his love and because of his holiness, his wrath is going to be poured out on all who have have not followed him, who have disobeyed, who have fallen short of his glory. But in the sending of his son, in the advent of Jesus, in this is love. This word who became flesh, this baby that was born in the manger said, Father, no. Don't pour it out on them. Let me drink it. I'll drink it. And he knew what he had to do. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to take all that wrath upon himself. Why would he do it then? Why would God send the son to do this? Why would the son go to the cross to do that? Love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish should not drink from the cup of his wrath, but instead have the fullness of life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn you, to make you drink of this wrath. Instead, he came that through him, the world might be saved. He appeased God's wrath on your behalf. All because of God's fierce love for you. Isn't that beautiful? We have to embrace that really bad news to be able to really understand how good of news this is. It's the Christmas story. That makes God known is the advent of Jesus that helps us to see who he is. And when we really see Jesus and and why he came, why he was born, he was born to die. When we see that, when we glimpse that, we really know God. We can really stand, just like Buddy the Elf, and say, I know him. And because we know him, we can say, We know he's love. He is love. Going to read that verse for us again, then I'm going to pray for us. God is love, and in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me pray for us, Father. Just like Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, I pray now for our church. Help us to see what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ. The love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, cognitively it's hard for us to understand it, but experientially I've tasted it. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we worship a God who is love. A God who loves us so much that he won't tolerate or won't accept or won't approve of the things that are bad for us, that are harmful for us, that are contradictory to the desire that you have for us. But praise you, Father, that you came up with a way to not let me drink the cup of wrath reserved for me because of your love. But I had a substitute. Jesus, thank you for your courage and your love for all of us that you would drink that cup on our behalf so that we can have life the fullness of life. Thank you for this Christmas story, that it's, that it's more than cliches, that it's more than Hallmark Christmas movies. It's more, it's the gospel. It's the good news that there was a purpose in your birth. So we commemorate the day that you came, the day that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We commemorate that, but don't let us divorce that from the why you came. You came so that we might have life. You came to appease the wrath of the fathers so that we may know you. We praise you for all of that in Jesus' name, amen.